0: Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monocle24, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll present you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monocle24. This week, we discussed the mad events in Brasilia last Sunday.
1: If we're seeing, you know, clear signs and clear rhetoric along these lines, then you absolutely have to take action before and not after the event.
0: Plus, a check-in from PT Uomo.
1: It was really an experience, and and he said he
2: designed it this way to to take you through different emotions and and through a real journey.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, we discussed the mad scenes in Brasilia last Sunday when protesters invaded the Congress. Of course, there's been a lot of comparison of the capital 6th of January invasion. I had a chat as well with Chris Chermak where we discussed how similar were both events. It was quite, uh, well, I say surprising, but in many ways this has been expected for a few days that something would happen because a lot of Bolsonaro supporters, they had camps in the city of Brasilia for quite a few weeks now. Uh, and from my understanding, one of the issues and the, and the fact why they invaded uh, the Congress in such a way, the police and the armed forces, they were not very tough on that. They said, you know what, uh, I was reading that even the Secretary of Public Security for Brazil. Brazilia said, you know, the protests were peaceful, uh, this just a few hours before uh, they invaded the Congress. So I think there was quite a lenience, uh, uh, you know, with, with the authorities from Brazil. And that's why the, the city's governor, Ibanez Rocha, he's been removed uh, from his post for 90 days by one of our Supreme Court judges, because he was silent. He didn't do much uh, to avoid, I mean, quite a disturbing scenes, Marcus, there was so much destruction uh, uh, actually, you know, it's it's a it's a beautiful building. A lot of artwork have been damaged, uh, and much more as well.
3: It's been about two years since the U.S. Capitol riots. I'm wondering, you are saying that 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 it seems that the officials weren't really prepared for anything like that. But why is that? Considering that we saw, we saw riots in Washington D.C. after Donald Trump
0: and Jair Bolsonaro was often seen someone like him. Exactly, and 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 although Bolsonaro did kind of condemn the invasion, I mean. Let's be honest here. Here is a president or former president now who left the country on the 28th of December while he was still president, Orlando. He just left. I mean, he never congratulated the new president properly. So, of course, when you have a leader who doesn't, you know, even admit that he lost uh, an election properly, I mean, I have to say, of course, his supporters will will go mad. I mean, literally, I think we can call them extremists. And, Marcus, one interesting thing here is, Brazil has always been a violent country of course, there's a lot of crime but we never had kind of uh, you know internal kind of terrorism and I think in many ways uh, this new approach by some bolsonaristas can be classified uh, as terrorism. I was myself in Brasilia on the 26th 27th of December, a few days before the inauguration and when I was there there was a little bit of tension in the air because the papers were reporting that there was a threat of bombs by some Bolsonaro supporters, nothing happened. I think, you know, two men have been arrested for that. But there's been this tension and I mean, of course, there's been some violent protests before, but not at this scale, I wouldn't say.
3: Let's also cross over to Washington DC, where I'm joined by our correspondent, Chris Jermak. Chris, good morning to you. It's obviously easy to compare what happened in Brasilia to the Capitol attacks two years ago, but what did it feel like following these events in Brazil?
1: Um, Well, I mean, yes, it it is very easy to do, as you say, Marcus. And I think there are a lot of similarities. One of the things that's, that's interesting to me uh, about this, when you look at the similarities and and differences, is the role that the two leaders played. And as, as Fernando was discussing there of Jair Bolsonaro, of course, two years ago, Donald Trump played an even more central role, if you will, um, in what happened on the 6th of January, because he was still, you know, in power at that point. It was, you know, he was, he had not yet vacated the office, the inauguration had not yet happened. And he was actively trying, To stop that from happening. Um, And so, and he, for that matter, invited also his supporters to protest at the Capitol. Um, But what I find interesting as well uh, is. Other similarities are just, you know, the fact that police still were not necessarily as prepared as they should have been um, for for this to happen two years ago as well. But I think it also just goes to show, even though Bolsonaro, as Fernando was saying, uh, was, you know, somewhat silent through all of this and just kind of left the country. Once you start something into motion the way that Donald Trump did the way that Jair Bolsonaro did as well it is incredibly hard to stop it both have these passionate supporters who will believe what what their leaders tell them about an election being rigged about about them being you know the rightful leaders of the country And that's what you what I think you saw in both cases is people who therefore, you know, come into the capital and are determined to do whatever it takes for their person to get back into power. And that really is just quite incredible. And obviously, otherwise, I mean, just just the timing of this was was incredible and prompted lots of reactions here in the U.S. uh, comparisons to January 6th, a number of uh, you know, to show perhaps one, uh, one side of how we're still working through this over here in the United States, a number of Democratic uh, members of Congress tweeted also directly linking this, saying this was Trump-inspired what happened in Brazil, um, you know, kind of making that direct link to January 6th. The Republicans also condemned what happened uh, in Brazil, but of course made no mention of Donald Trump in their statements.
3: Chris, do you think various countries will now need to start thinking about how to guarantee safe transition of power from one leader to another. Are we seeing the birth of some kind of a new trend in political protests?
1: That's a good question, Marcus. You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I remember being struck myself, uh, frankly, at the time after January 6th, that you looked at certain other elections and you even looked at certain far-right movements that were not willing to go this route. I remember, you know, Marine Le Pen, for example, in France. You, you almost wondered, or I personally wondered at least, why is she not going this route of, you know, saying that the election was a fraud or anything like that? But that didn't happen. So it's not something that is common Necessarily, even to sort of far right or or right wing, uh, uh, you know, leaders who are trying to get elected to to higher office in different countries. So I do think, in a way, you have to take it on a case by case basis. I mean, what what is what is clear in the cases of brazil and the united states is that as fernando says uh you know this was telegraphed we we knew this might happen because bolsonaro just like trump had had instigated this had had encouraged the crowd had said ahead of the election that it would be a fraud that there was no way he could possibly lose so whether it's a coalition or not, you, you just kind of have to take leaders at their word, I think. It's a little bit too easy. you know. I've been speaking to historians here in the United States as well. And it's just, uh, they've been telling telling me that you know it's just too easy for us to get complacent, to imagine that these things cannot happen, that they won't happen, or if they have happened even here in the US two years ago, well, that's in the past and that's not going to happen again. So in that sense, yes, I think we have to listen to our public, we have to listen to our leaders, leaders, if you're seeing signs of this, if we're seeing, you know, clear signs and clear rhetoric along these lines, then you absolutely have to take action before and not after the event.
0: And I have to agree with Chris on that one, because even in Brazil, the inauguration of Lula was quite successful, Marcos. I mean, there was no problems with security. So there was a sense in the air. I mean, the Bolsonaro camps, they were still there in the city, but I felt... I mean, even the media, I mean everybody was talking how successful was the inauguration, so I mean in a way it was expected but I think it, it caught a lot of people by surprise actually that this happened you know so abruptly and so violently as well Just finally Fernando what is happening next and and,
3: and does this give us some kind of an indication what kind of a president Luiz Inal, Lula da Silva is going to have
0: Well I think, I think after everything let's remember this happened overnight still very early in Brazil so let's see what's going to happen today but there will be Lula declared a federal intervention in the capital of Brazil until the 31st of January so there will be a lot of police in the streets. Uh, as I said, the governor of the city has been removed from the post for 90 days. So it's quite a tense, but I think they're acting quite firmly. There's been quite a lot of arrests, as you've mentioned, uh, 300 people. You know, it, it was a firm decision. Of course, everybody's saying that this... T- this, I mean, a, a third term for Lula in a way, it will be a problematic one for sure. The country is very much divided. But I have to add here as well, it's not all Bolsonaro supporters, uh, you know, that the, the, they were invading. I think a lot of people condemned the way, perhaps not as much as they, they should condemn as well. But perhaps this could also make Bolsonaro weaker uh, in a way because it's been quite violent. I think this scared as well many Brazilians. Also, this week we head to Singapore, where the first edition of Art SG, Southeast Asia's largest ever art fair, opened. We previewed the event with Monaco's writer in Singapore, Naomi Shu Elegant.
4: The first day was really lovely. So it's a beautiful day in Singapore, and as you know, Art SG is pretty much the biggest art event opening in about 10 years in this region. It's been delayed for a long time, so it was a super proud exhibition center. There's I think a 1,000 artists from 30 countries, 150 galleries here, um, very, very crowded space, and a lot of people from China, which, as you know, just opened up two days ago. So there's very much a mood of jubilance and like things are really coming back to the region.
5: And where is the fair actually taking place?
4: It's taking place in Marina Bay Sands, which is that um, very iconic Singaporean building with a huge uh, pool on top uh, in a really big space. But there's also events, platforms, uh, film screenings happening in the big museums all over the country. And what about
5: exciting new gallery launches? Are there many of those?
4: There are, yeah. One in particular, which I'm actually attending the opening reception after this, is Wow Gallery from Singapore. Uh, Sorry, from Hong Kong, which is opening its first um, outpost in Singapore. Um, And there's a lot of blue chip galleries here too. There was a little uh, Ruinar champagne booth, which I may go and investigate tomorrow. Um, And yeah, just lots and lots of Southeast Asian artists and and really cool stuff.
5: And who are some of the artists whose work you're most excited to see?
4: So I really enjoyed um, Ang Ko from Myanmar, who's a painter, and uh, Justin Lim, a Malaysian painter. Um, and there are galleries like Richard Co, which has, uh, I think, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok and Singapore outposts, uh, as well as Spurs Gallery Beijing, showing a lot of really great Chinese artists, both uh, legacy ones and really up and coming ones. Um, which I think Singapore is a pretty unique place where you can see, you know, this kind of global outreach, but at the same time, a lot of emerging artists who, for them, this is like kind of the the biggest platform they've ever been on.
5: Mm. Uh, Naomi, as we know, of course, uh, COVID has has ravaged the region. China's just opened. Is there much? Uh, are there many masks around? How is the how is the pandemic being dealt with in these what I imagine to be fairly crowded situations?
4: So for Singapore, the mask regulation ended a few months ago. People are still a little bit cautious, so you kind of see it 50-50, I would say. But, you know, it's pretty crowded. People really want to get back out there. There's a lot of cocktail parties and things like that. Um, As I said, people are basically pretty relieved and happy to be in the same room again, chatting face to face.
5: Mm. The the fair's billed as Southeast Asia's largest art fair. Is the rest of the region represented this weekend?
4: Very much so, yeah um so you know there's from thailand to indonesia to philippines and then obviously you have your european and um, american artists too but i think what's really nice is that there's a lot of small artists who previously would have just been shown in their own countries where now there's uh since people are traveling again there's really really a global audience for their work
5: and i wonder what this means for the art industry in singapore
4: i think it means a lot of good things i think singapore for a long time has been a bit of a second fiddle to Hong Kong, which is just an iconic place for art and for auctions. And then uh, Seoul in recent years has really, really grown as an art hub as well. But I think Singapore is really well placed in Southeast Asia for these artists that might be overlooked from, you know, Myanmar to Malaysia, as I mentioned, and who now are really getting an international uh, platform.
5: Mm. And just finally, before we go, we know how important food is in Singapore. Uh, I understand the art fair uh, is uh, very much going into detail on where people should eat.
4: It is, yeah. It's um, pretty much the number one priority for Singaporeans. So RSG released a very detailed guide, you know, apart from museums, exactly where to eat, which hawker stalls to go to, which cocktail bars to go to, which I really, really appreciate.
5: (laughs) It sounds amazing. So finally, give us your agenda. You're off to the champagne booth.
4: I am, yeah. I might have to look into that, as I said. Uh, This evening, I'll be going to the Wild Gallery's opening reception, which I'm very excited about. The founder, Kevin Poon, is coming in from Hong Kong. Um, And then I'll probably be going to the fair again for the next couple days, because it's so big that I didn't even have time to see everything today.
0: And from our print media show, The Stack, we have a highlight here with Davi Uskissa. He's the co-founder and editor of the brilliant Buffalo Zine.
6: Last spring we heard, we got an email from PR Consulting, who is the APR agency who manages the Chelsea Hotel. Announcing that the hotel was going to reopen after the summer, after being closed for about 12 years. So we thought, let's try to do our hotel issue at the Chelsea Hotel. Like It's the best hotel we could ever think of for this project. And after a few calls and a little bit of back and forth, they agreed. They generously gave us access to stay there for a couple of weeks while we are producing this issue.
0: And they recently reopened as well. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of a, a a new spec to it as well. Yes. Right?
6: So the hotel is over 100 years old wow. and it's gone through a lot of cycles from like luxury hotel to dodgy apartment building and it had like a very iconic era in the 60s, 70s where a lot of artists were living there and then it went down in decay and then it closed down around 2010 it's been closed down as a hotel for the last 12 years and it's just reopened it's been all done up and it now is again a luxury hotel but some of the residents who some of them have lived there since the 70s 80s are still living there so it's like a Coexistence of these two worlds, like the tourists who stay there and the all uh, time residents. It's very strange.
1: I
0: love that. That probably makes it even more interesting of a place to do yes, a magazine.
6: Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's full of stories.
0: And I love, you know, there's very interesting people at the magazine. I, I'm looking here with the special cover with Marina Bramovic. It seems to me that there's a very strong connection to kind of names from the cultural world as well.
6: Yeah, it has a very magnetic energy. Even Marina, when she went to the hotel, she got imbued by the, let's say, cheeky spirits of the Chelsea Mm. Hotel. And she gave us this cover that when we received the images, we were like really, really happy to see them. You can see it online. Everyone has like a interest for the story of the hotel whether because they've been before if they're a little bit older and they have some stories of staying or, or visiting or even the young people from newer generations who've never, never even accessed the hotel because it's been closed down, like I said, for the last 12 years have a lot of interest even you can see standing by the hotel you see continuously like tourists taking pictures going in and out and actually when you arrive there after all the stories you've heard and and all the things you've seen it feels a bit like going into i don't know a sort of museum or a legendary space
0: I love that. And and, and I, I love, as of course, I don't mind a kind of a minimalist hotel whatever, but it feels a little bit almost decadent. I like mm. that. And you can see that in the photography in the new issue. For example, I have this image of, of Jane Pan as well in a, in a bathtub with champagne, kind of this classic <laughs> celebrity goes on a rampage in a, in a bedroom, you know. Yeah,
6: champagne and beer topless in a bathtub, very Chelsea hotel.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important in a way. And, and what about to get all those names? Did you deliberately try to look for people that had some connection with the hotel or sometimes it was quite mm-hmm. random meetings that happened.
6: Yeah, so it's a very New York issues and the idea was to feature iconic names from connected to the history of the hotel, but also to draw like a new generation of artists from the creative community of New York today. And the list of features is a mix of both. For example, Viva Hoffman, who was a Warhol superstar and lived in the hotel, is there. Also Christopher Marcos from the Andy Warhol circle. Who else is there? Harry Smith, John Waters, but also younger people like Chloe Sivigni, Air Theatre, Miranda July. Who else is there? Nene Sherry. And a great uh, bunch
0: of people, right? Yes, and I have here actually your interview. You did this interview with John Waters. I mm-hmm. mean, he's such a legend. Yes, he is. Very, very good fun there. He's a gentleman. So. Is he a gentleman? Mm,
6: absolutely. He's very sweet. He looks a bit grumpy at <laughs> first <laughs> time, but he's a really sweet man.
0: What's your experience actually with the Chelsea Hotel? I know, did you knew just kind of, you know, the legendary stories or perhaps have you been there be- before the reopening?
6: No, just outside. I think last time I went to New York a few times ago, I kind of... Passed by, but you couldn't really enter. And the restaurant and and the bar at the at the on the ground floor were closed down. The experience was very special because. First of all, I've never stayed in a hotel for such a long time and also such a nice hotel. I could never afford to stay there for mm. a couple of weeks because those rooms come at a very high price. So I was feeling very rich staying there and it's very, it's been very nicely done up, but also it's just so loaded with history and the atmosphere is still kind of like very, very heavy and very... I don't know, you can feel the weight of history of everyone who's been around it's kind of like a very tight condensed space it 's very vertical. It actually was one of, uh, it was the tallest building of in New York in Manhattan when it was built mm. in eighteen eighty four But the actual surface is not very big, so the lobby area, the restaurant uh, the Spanish restaurant uh, on the ground floor, the lobby bar all of those spaces are kind of like very tight and condensed, and then you have all this stream of guests going by and also the residents who stay there. So it was very immersive and also for us as a team making the magazine all together staying there in such a packed tight space and time was like a summer camp because we had the opportunity to have the uh, human interaction with the people who was being featured with the artist we usually don't even meet the people we feature in the magazine in person we commission other writers or contributors to interview them but in this case it was more participative because we did some of the interviews we shot some of the images and it was just like being there as a spectator uh, watching it all happen and unfold
0: and I love that you mentioned that you stayed in a for a long time at the hotel because that's always mm-hmm. been a dream of mine. Spend mm-hmm. like a month like living yeah. luxuriously <laughs> and decadent in a hotel, especially like the Chelsea.
6: Isn't it great? Yeah. It,
0: no, it is amazing. And and now talking we're talking that about how about every issue of Buffalo Zine is completely different from each other. Do you fear that you might repeat yourself soon? Because, I mean, I've been following the magazine from the beginning. You guys come up with a very original idea every time. What's the process like to actually choose? This one, for example, you told me that you always wanted to do a hotel and then by kind of a, a lucky coincidence, by a few emails, then you, you arranged that. But how do you choose? Do you already know, for, you don't need to say it right now, but you already know like for the next two issues what the theme would be?
6: Only one issue ahead uh, mm. usually, but we don't really plan so far ahead. It's basically we try to go in a different direction with every issue because once you've been immersed in like a very specific world, whether it's like a, a Gen Z issue or uh, an issue about the internet or about food or interiors or traveling, you kind of want to refresh your mind and change and go in a different direction so that's what we try to do with every issue and there's always a lot of bandwidth i think to do something new and go somewhere we haven't been before i hope that's the uh, intention
0: and now a lovely recipe for you a highlight from food neighborhoods it's by chef luke farrell he shares an easy stir fry recipe from his thai inspired london-based restaurants
7: so what D crap my name is Luke Farrell and I'm the chef partner at Plaza Khao Gang, a southern Thai curry rice restaurant and speedboat bar the cuisine of Bangkok's Chinatown both in central London this easy stir fried pork belly with pineapple would sit happily on the menu at both restaurants as it uses Thai ingredients with a stir-frying technique. Get a pan or wok and from a cold start add a tablespoon of oil. To this, 100 grams of good quality pork belly, sliced without the skin. Raise the heat and fry very gently. Take your time. You want the richness of its own fat for this dish to be a success. It will twist up tough before it gives up and the fat melts flat watch it and add splashes of water to help it along when it starts to color smash two cloves of garlic with the side of a cleaver roughly chop and slide that into the wok fry until fragrant add half a carrot and 100 grams of fresh pineapple sliced however you like we'd seek out a young phuket pineapple in the restaurants but this dish works well with any slightly unripe pineapple, just like what you'd find in the supermarket. Think of it as a vegetable in this dish. Add a tablespoon of oyster sauce and continue to stir fry. Then a tablespoon or a good jolt of fish sauce from the bottle and a pinch of white pepper. Up the heat and add a teaspoon of sugar just to help it caramelise. Give it a couple more flicks in the wok until it smells sweet. You'll know, as it will bubble rather than sweat. In a bowl, make a slurry with one tablespoon of corn flour and two tablespoons of water. Pour this in a circular motion into the wok until it thickens and comes together all glossy. Finally, slice some red chili on the diagonal. You could use hot bird's eye chili, but a milder chili will do. The red color is what pulls it all together dish up and serve with rice. This is everyday cooking in Thailand. The quantities are just a guide. What you're looking for is something fresh, salty and sweet with a chili kicker. Enjoy.
0: Also this week I've recorded the first global countdown of the year and for it I decided to explore a little bit more the French Polynesia's music charts. I'm taking you to the South Pacific. More specifically, I wish you <laughs> yes. Well, I really wish we were there, and that's the reason why this is the country I chose for my first Global Countdown of the year: French Polynesia. Okay. I mean, I really want to be there right now, mm. having a lovely drink on the beach and mm. listening to those tracks because I think they really match the country somehow. I know some might say it's a cliche, but sometimes cliches can be good.
8: We're not going to get many chilly beats in the next few tracks, are we? Exactly. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm having list- yeah, so the thing. Is I do listen to these things before we go on, and it was it was like well. sand between the toes from minute one. So whatever you are doing right now, um, I sort of almost want you to close your eyes as Faye and I take you to basically somewhere warm and sunny, <laughs> not not a corner of London, which I don't think we've seen blue sky for the last two months. Um, okay, so French Polynesia. Can you before we dive in, tell me a little bit about the kind of the general style and the vibe and and the sort of the, the scene in French Poly- Polynesia for those of us desperate to know?
0: First of all, lots of local acts, uh, lots of reggae and, and, and new bands as well which I will be discussing here so I mean perhaps it's not as traditional as some might think but clearly there is this elements of the beach culture the Tahitian kind of uh, original rhythms you know uh, from the old times but they, you know they, they, they are up with the times as well You know, it's something that I can definitely see in the charts uh, somewhere else including this track by no, uh, number 5 Emma, it's funny because there's not much information about the artist, his name is DJ Knox, uh, mm. and the track is called "Daddy O." Of course, it's it's a little bit electronic <laughs> here. This is definitely where you would hear in a chilled-out night uh, uh, somewhere in Tahiti yeah, I, or in Papiti. I think
8: we can safely say that the lyrics and the themes of of, of today do not have the word "woke" attached to them. No. So, okay, forget about <laughs> Okay, Daddy O, do your worst. Let's have a listen to DJ Knox. <laughs>
0: And okay, I love well, the globalised world, papacito, you know, a little bit of kind of Latin American rhythms in there as well. What, Maybe I'm reading too much we, into I think, it.
8: I think you might be overthinking this <laughs> thing. Um, just a touch. I mean, it, it, look, just in front of me, I have you and I have all the people in the control room. We're on live radio and we're all taking a moment just to have a little bit of a shoulder shrug to that. The arms were going out in a gentle punch. It was all really relaxed, really nice. But then we're all looking at each other going, "Hmm." Is it really that good or are we just cold <laughs> and in need of a bit of musical sunshine? Well,
0: to be honest, number four, I generally think it's 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 better than DJ Knox. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, oh, DJ Knox. DJ Knox, if you're listening to me, it's sorry. actually, it's a new band. Uh, they were formed in early 2022 uh, and, you know, it's, it's a very kind of famous singer in the region. Uh, no this horror- is number four. No,
8: number four? Number four. Number no, DJ Knox is gone. It's gone. We've got rid of him. we got rid sorry. of him.
0: We have Kailoa, which okay. is a new band. You know, it. It's it's a, it's a brother, a cousin, so it's kind of a, a little bit of a family affair. Uh, the song is called on Rave, uh, Like a Drink. I mean, your, your French is better than mine. You might understand have a uh, go. the lyrics of this
8: track. Okay, let's, let's have a little bit of Kailoa.
5: Quand
8: Lovely. I don't think we're going to be making any lyrical challenges to the likes of Moliere or Baudelaire. I think we're, I think we're sort of in pretty safe ground there.
0: It's romantic, though. It's we okay. need a bit of romance, you it's know? It's all
8: right. I mean, he sort of talks about, you know, nice poems, nice ladies. Um the the video is worth watching as per usual for possibly not the right reasons i mean this guy is or this group they're they're sort of obviously quite profile cuz i think we're going to hear from them a little bit i'm not massive doing a massive spoiler alert here by saying they're popping up later um again but when you look at the video, please go and look at the video, ladies and gentlemen, not least for the possibly the naffest pair of reflective sunglasses I've <laughs> ever seen. Oh, I'm just rushing out to buy them. And also it seems to have been filmed in a local park. I mean, I used to live in Birmingham here in the UK. I mean, Cannon Hill Park in Birmingham doesn't look a million miles from where Kailoa have decided to film that obviously very lovely song.
0: Well, I think their budget was probably finished after another video of or them, by, which was the in sunglasses. A, exactly, exactly, which was in a, in a better location, but I do I do like Kailoa, So well done, they, and they're new. They're very new to the uh, Tahitian music scene as well. Mm. French Polynesia, of course. Or well,
8: maybe they'll be able to buy I don't know a better camera when they when they get their next song into the top five. Brace yourselves. There's more of that coming.
0: There's more of that, but with some touches <coughs> of hip hop. I would say. I mean, very really? mild, very mild. I was
8: about to say you're stretching. Yeah,
0: hard. I think I am stretching yes, a, little a little bit today.
8: Number three, Rusky Banana. Best name of a band I've heard for a very long time and a good tune
0: I like this tune it's called Obey let's have a listen
8: again not challenging us too hard on the lyrics there
0: but, you know, I think that's okay. I like it. I think that's okay. <laughs> it,
8: I say I like
5: and,
0: it. And they have the name, Rusky Banana there. Yeah. Uh, but so far, we just heard artists from French Polynesia, of course. But this next track, Emma, this is a song I was I just recently returned from Brazil. Mm. It was playing everywhere in the radio, here in the UK as well. And and I think it's fantastic that uh, Nigeria is definitely a hotspot for musicians these days. There's so many, you know, we have artists like CK, but Rema as well. Uh, he has this song "Calm Down," but this time he invited Selena Gomez to sing with him. I think you know it's good for the, especially for the American charts.
9: It's a
8: rema then.
0: Exactly. Let's okay. have a listen.
8: Don't you ask, you know you're loved that song not least because it has one of the most deliciously silly lyrics i've ever heard in a song i don't even know how to say this on the radio i start to feel her bum bum yes
0: i mean i'm very flexible i come from brazil I the you're lyrics, very flexible. I'm very, because the lyrics in brazilian music they're so kind of a bit awkward at times so i don't really yeah Ooh. We'll do the Global Countdown Brazil next please, time. Please. And I think this song matches perfectly from what we've heard before. Of course, it's a, perhaps a little bit uh, well-produced. Lots produced, of bum feeling. Lots of bum feeling. Mm. Do you want more bum?
8: Always. <laughs> I can't get enough of it. Where are we going next?
0: They are back. Uh, it's it's Kailoa again. Oh, Sunglasses is back. Sunglasses is back. Love but it. Th- this video is better, actually. Emma, because, you know, it, it sounds like a, a, a tourism ad uh, for French Polynesia as well. Because, I mean, I mean not minding the sunglasses I mean but you can see that beautiful sea color and It's
8: it's the same glasses though. Yeah. I mean this is the same video than than the, than the one that we had for number 4 but it's it's on a beach, so that's absolutely fine. That's the good camera enough. is still wonky. Everything keeps going out of shot. Uh, he's got a girlfriend in this one, which is quite good. So he's obviously been, been able to shell out for extras. Um, but, but what I quite like about it, it's, it's sweet. Um, we'll listen to it in a second. But it, it has a sort of lovely bit of civic pride attached to it, which L- is lovely. Because
0: he's inviting her to his paradise, which is in, in Tahiti, you know, where, where he's from. And, and who wouldn't like to live there with him, perhaps? Let's have a listen. Kai Loa with Girl.
5: Oh, girl, let me show you my home. Come with me, live in paradise. Feel with me the shine of love.
8: So, I mean, what I quite like about that is as a sort of an innocence to it, having had Remmer and his bum bum, um, there's a like, come and live with me. It's all sweet. We'll have a cuddle. I'll loan you my sunglasses. We'll have a nice drink and and everything's happy.
0: Reminds me, I mean, you as a Brit, uh, reminds me a little bit of Peter Andre, mysterious girl, late 90s, early noughties, perhaps.
8: I'm not going to pass any judgments about anybody's waistlines (laughs) now. But, you know, um, compared with Peter Andre, who obviously was, you know, it, half of his job was supposed to be, you know, to, to look the way he did. But, yeah, know, it's, it's it's fine. Any of the most important question, are any of these making it to the Monocle playlist? Well, I
0: think Calm Down, I think it, it's a very strong contender. But from the locals, I don't know, maybe Kailoa actually could be a good one mm. with Girl. And for those stories, Louis Allen takes us to a centuries-old building that still stands in London's Brixton neighborhood to this day and which is emblematic of the area's agrarian past. This is Brixton,
5: where this train terminates.
9: Step into Brixton, southwest London's busy beating hub for music, culture and arts. The streets are lined with a mix of high street shops and bustling market stalls pumping tunes accompanied by the smells of incense and the sounds of trader calls. Brixton moves to its own tempo, its own rhythm, and it's fast. But away from the busy centre and up Brixton Hill, in the quieter suburban part of the area, you'll find Brixton's best-kept secret. Now, I'll forgive you for thinking I'm alluding to the iconic music venue called Brixton Windmill, instrumental to the rise of bands such as Fat White Family, Goat Girl and Black Midi. That is for another time. I am sharing a different story about a different miracle a different windmill that stands tall and quiet in a small park, and even though it has stood for centuries, barely anyone seems to have seen it. Brixton's windmill has gone through a series of changes since it was built by John Ashby in 1816, but today it is marked as London's last working windmill. The Black Tower stands boldly like a silhouette amongst its flowery suburban backdrop. Originally, the 15-metre tower brick construction was made simply to mill grain and provide flour to shops and stores across England. The design of the mill is clever and smart, with a boat-like rotating cap at the top that can turn the sails to face the wind's direction. The mill has four floors, enclosed with bricks painted in tar to keep the rain from breaking through. The history of the mill is a family affair passing through a succession of Ashby sons. In 1850, it landed to the fourth son, Joshua Ashby, who was met with the ultimate windmill problem, a lack of wind. A lack of wind because Britain's industrial changes meant Brixton was modernising. Cornfields were turning into houses and the wind flow was being blocked by the developments, forcing Joshua to buy a more attractive, prosperous watermill in Mitcham, a few miles to the south, leaving Brixton's windmill sailless, defunct and used for storage. The following years were cyclical, a story of success and abandonment repeating itself like the turning of its own sails. But 1954 brought a Brixton battle that it still fights today. You can probably guess the next part. A property developer put in a proposal with the hope of building flats. Luckily, the application was rejected. Restoration attempts started but stopped again, and by the 1980s, the windmill was derelict, abandoned, and vandalised once more. The shell was still erect and sturdy, and the eyes of the mill watched as Brixton burned in the riots as unemployment and racial tensions rose. Prospects for the windmill looked bleak until 2003, when fresh impetus was provided by the local community. The Friends of Windmill Gardens Group was founded and put in place ambitious plans in partnership with Lambeth Council and thanks to successful funding bids. Brixton Windmill was successfully restored to become a functioning windmill once more. Today, it produces flour and supplies to many bakeries, shops and wholesalers across London. You may just be eating a hearty sandwich or delicious Eccles cake right now that uses their flour. A true community success that's testament to community action. The building's form is still beautiful, unassuming and bold but wiser. It's long elegant figure peeking above the houses. An architectural reminder of England's industrial past and Brixton's complicated history. Take a walk up to Brixton's windmill and it'll take you back to a simpler time. A space to reflect on the history of process, the evolution of production and possibility. You may even find an event happening there like Tai Chi or a baking workshop but just like it did in 1816, producing flour and harmonizing the community. UBS
10: has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
11: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
7: To find out how we could help you,
11: contact us at
0: ubs.com. You are listening to The Curator, now a highlight from The Entrepreneurs, where we meet an innovative and disruptive female founder who has changed the landscape of the personal care business in her home market. Kulan Davadorj is the founder and chief technologist of L'Amour, Mongolia's first organic skincare brand.
12: So I was definitely not in this sector. I did my master's in New York at Columbia University in Renewable Energy, management and policy and that's why I came back to Mongolia after having lived abroad all my life in Germany in Switzerland, and Switzerland and the U.S. later and I came to work for Mongolia's very first wind farm which was exciting but then when I came to Mongolia because of the extreme climate and the the capital city you know Ulaanbaatar is so extreme it gets plus 30 in the summer but minus 30 degrees in the winter. And everything was just taking like all the different negative externalities were just affecting me so badly that at one point I started having allergy for the very first time in my life. And it was very annoying because because of the allergy I started having rashes and eczema. That was kind of the starting point. I started asking myself why this is happening, you know, meeting up with doctors, etc. And eventually they suggested that I take care of my body try to live more healthier, try to use natural products, especially natural skincare products, because whatever I was using, it was making my rashes even worse. So that was kind of the initial starting point. And then I looked around and I could not find anything here. And the question came about, you know, this amazing country, which is so huge and just with this vast countryside and all these natural resources and raw materials that you can find anywhere, why? Nobody's making organic skincare. So that was my initial starting point And I started to research about it. It started to become a passion of mine. I literally started taking Formula Botanica courses online, which is Organic Skincare Formulation Diploma, which is actually UK-based. And then I just started doing products at home. And eventually what I did for myself was good enough for me and friends and family liked it. So at one point, I literally just quit everything I've done, you know, made my kitchen into a small production lab. And that's how it went eight years before. And I have not done anything else ever since.
11: Amazing story. And like so many great stories of innovation, it begins with a need, I guess. Let me ask you though a bit about the product specifically. You've mentioned some of them, and you've mentioned the natural resources that are there for you to use and explore. What was that process like? How did you go about actually sourcing the products and figuring out what you exactly wanted to make?
12: Whenever I create a product, I always think of the intention of what the product needs to do. And essentially, because we are trying to create products that can be used by people of all ages, and, and it doesn't matter male or female, but just people with very sensitive dry skin and also that are sensitive towards, let's say, perfume, that's what I always think about. And then I also try to especially use things that are native to Mongolia. So for example, for us, sea buckthorn is one of the most normal ingredients, let's say, because we have it all over Mongolia and we use it on a daily basis in juices. We make different kinds of things out of it, but it's more like food related. So things like that, that are so normal to us Mongolians that I can find literally everywhere, just like nettle and thyme and rosehip or even just yak's milk. Something that for us is so normal is essentially unique to everybody else. So I always try to think about what can I use, what do we have, and what also has been used traditionally in Mongolia. For example, you know, the milk, we use it traditionally in Mongolia, like in various ways in our nomadic culture. So essentially taking what the nomads have been using since forever, because I mean, organic is nothing new to them. It it has been their way of life. Putting it into a normal, modern product that everybody, it doesn't matter where you are, can actually use it these days, you know. So, for example, we have something called sheep's tail fat oil that we use in Mongolia traditionally that we use on babies' skin, on elderly skin. And it has so much collagen because the Mongolian sheep, they put all their collagen into their tail because they have to survive these harsh winters. In the nomadic culture, this is so normal to us. But then obviously in the modern form, you know, young people, they don't use it anymore because of the smell, because of a lot of various different kind of reasons. But then we basically make a modern product out of it so that we can still use all the benefits, keep our tradition, but then also create a modern product
11: tell me a bit about ambition. How do you, you know, a few years down the track now with this business, it's obviously doing incredibly well, but tell me a bit about the ambition and how you plan for the future. What are your ideas in terms of its growth, in terms of where it might take you next?
12: Yes, so definitely, I mean, when I just started, it was more about just the product itself and getting the products out to people and just making sure that people use healthier products. But then along the way, when I figured that, you know, a lot of young people are looking up to us, not just Mongolians, but everywhere else in this world. When we started receiving awards for, you know, sustainability, for just really trying to create healthy but good quality products and in doing it in a way that it's not just creating products, but also through the brands, creating social impact and creating social change. That's when I realized really that we can do so much with this brand. So eventually our Philosophy now is love yourself, love others, and love the environment, because we really want to make sure that whatever we do, it doesn't matter to who we cater to, we really want to make sure that people around the world, first of all, learn to love themselves, meaning taking care of their body, making sure they understand what they use, and making sure they understand what they take in, and understand just everything about their health, Loving others, meaning this whole social impact thing. So we do so many projects in Mongolia and elsewhere where we just try to help other people. And for example, in Mongolia, we are now making this campaign where it's all about loving others unconditionally. So basically non-discriminating. And then the third part about loving the environment. So our production is zero waste. Every raw material becomes an end product. And for example, in Mongolia, we created Mongolia's first zero-waste corner where actually we have refill stations and people can come to us and just get their beloved body oil or facial oil within whatever container they want so that we as a manufacturer don't create waste and they as a customer don't create waste. So things like that, using recycled paper. In Mongolia, for example, we sell soap without any packaging, etc. It's just things that we can do through the brand that eventually will maybe change one person's life, but then through changing that one person's life, it will eventually create a better thing for our world. So we just really hope to engage with all our customers, especially in Mongolia, and really make sure they understand what we're all about so eventually they change their daily habits, they change their way of thinking so that we can really create the social impact. So eventually this is what we want to do globally. So we've started with Mongolia and we want to do it everywhere we're distributing.
0: And the Men's Fashion Weeks are about to start. But first, we had a lovely check-in with our fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, from Piti Uomo.
2: It has been really great to be in Florence, really sunny, and it's been a great fair, a really good mood. I think we started the year with a bit of a bleak outlook as to what the luxury industry will face in the year. But it's been really optimistic, uh, especially for the brands here, which are really specialist brands focused on on craft and, and on really timeless quality pieces. The brands have been saying that they've had a really good week and a lot of demand and orders from buyers coming in from the UK and the US, but also a lot of Japanese and South Korean buyers have been returning for the first time back to PT Uomo and placing orders, scouting new talents. So things are looking up.
5: And what about, I mean, there are so many extraordinary buildings in Florence, like, um, I don't know, the Duomo. Uh, Are many of the shows taking place in those landmarks?
2: They are indeed, and what's also really special is that there's not a long series of shows every day like in other fashion weeks. Uh, the fair usually will invite one or two uh, special guests uh, to, sh- to host fashion shows, so they're also much more highly anticipated. And I think the biggest highlight was a Belgian designer, Jan-Jan Van who did show his collection in uh, the Santa Maria Novella convent and it really became part of uh, of the show and the experience. You went in and you could take in the architecture, the show and a dance performance uh, took place. But then you came out thinking that the show is over and uh, that you, we would just go back on the street. But you entered this beautiful courtyard and the models were standing, showing the clothes uh, in front of these beautiful frescoes and almost blended in with, uh, with the art you would see on the walls. And it was really an experience. And, and he said he designed it this way to, to take you through different emotions and, and through a real journey. Mm-hmm.
5: Tell us what's selling, Natalie.
2: What seems to be selling more and more is the formal wear category. So, suits, um, loafers, dress shoes, and even ties are back. I spoke to uh, an Italian brand called BG who said that, um, you know, they've had a really tough uh, two, three years, but all of a sudden things are really looking up and there is a lot more appetite now that it's not really uh, part of a uniform and it's not mandatory to put on suits and to dress up. People are doing it a lot more uh, for pleasure and rediscovering the joy of putting on a good suit, uh, dressing up a bit more than you have to. Um, Richard James, a British tailor, told me they're even having trouble on keeping up with the demand that's coming from Europe, but also from these other strong markets that we've we've mentioned before, like um Korea, Japan and the US.
0: To end the show, Josh Fannett and Tong Edwards preview the second iteration of the Monaco Companion series with 50 essays for a brighter future.
10: So this is the second instalment of our paperback franchise. We launched it at the end of last year because we really thought uh, there was a place on the newsstand next to the till in a beautiful bookshop for a more thoughtful, thought-led book of essays, 50 Ideas to Improve Your Life. That was the first one. And this next instalment, 50 Essays for a Brighter Future, came out on the rather odd date of uh, just before Christmas. So uh, a couple of people probably got it, but it's properly hitting newsstands now.
11: Josh, talk to me a little bit about the process. If you're looking towards uh, voices who can tell you about building a brighter future, not a highfalutin way, but in a practical way, how do you go about Drawing those talents.
10: Well, I think it's something that obsesses journalists, making uh, prognostications about the future, a little bit of naval gazing. And what we wanted to do is take away from that notion of, uh, you know, everyone having everything figured out. What this is is fifty people who know their onions. They may be authors, they may be um, architects, they might be landscape architects, thinkers. Uh, we have a U.S. four-star general, and we have a few of our own correspondents as well. And they're musing on everything from the environment, big, important things, how we build our cities, how we structure our cities, to the history of cheerfulness, Tom, to people talking about the importance of having a repertoire in the age of there's an app for that. People being able to know jokes, know how to sing, know how to interact with each other. So it's very high-low. We talk about those things that Monocle will always find important, say the importance of craft, of making things, of caring about where things come from and their provenance, to um, how to be a good country what the world might look like in 2050, and uh, one of my personal favourites, the essay that kicks things off by uh, the writer Eliane Glazer, um, why the future is boring. The future's boring? What, What on earth can you possibly mean, Josh? Well, I think this is just the best type of essay because it takes something we all know very well and know to be true, the fact that, A lot of the attendant nightmare of living in the digital age is jumping through hoops, personal verification, proving you're not a robot, saying you've read terms and conditions. And actually, when people prognosticate about the future, they don't really tend to think about people or their ethics. They tend to think about technology. How will we get around? It'll be a driverless future where you'll be able to fly, get on your hoverboard, Marty McFly but actually the future has become quite a, a tedious dirge of excel documents and uh, bu- <laughs> uh, um, and box ticking and we need we we need to be rem- I don't know what you're talking about Josh. well we need to be reminded you know in uh, in one breath we're having a conversation about ai uh, usefully taking over the drudgery of work and in another we have very skilled people uh, i'm not talking about you and i but maybe other people in the workforce um who spend all day you know clicking their way through um bits of logistics you know uh, verification automation and Eliane makes this amazing point that as we imagine the future as being bound up with technology, we need to be careful that the byproduct of that technology isn't the thing that rules us. And I think when we look at social media and when we look at uh, the the information age as it plays out, there's a lot more to think about than simply the boringness of having to complete online checklists. Well, speaking
11: of binding and speaking of innovation and looking to the future, there's something kind of pleasing to to my slightly elderly eye, at least, Josh, that... This product, which has been greeted with so much enthusiasm, like its predecessor, the first Monocle companion, um, as a great innovation, as a great exciting strategic change of direction for Monocle, it's a it's a paperback book, and in a sense that also sums up something about our attitude to doing things at the right pace and doing things properly, which is that the humble paperback book. You mentioned it already, a sort of old fashioned vehicle for reaching a large number of people has a critical role to play, even in this day of the digital deluge.
10: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try and make a tenuous link, so bear bear with me on this. But there's an amazing essay uh, by a Jewish-American author called Batya Ungar Sargon, Uh, She's an incredible writer. She's the deputy opinion editor for Newsweek uh, and wrote um, a a very persuasive book about the future of the media. What she says is that, you know, newspapers used to be the mass market and in order to appeal to the most people, the newspapers tended to be slightly left-leaning. They would bring people along with their arguments. And US society, as an example, changed. You know, people who were against uh, mixed-race marriages or uh, homosexual marriage have come round to the idea that that's probably okay. or... Luckily, most people have. But today, the world of media is split. You don't have to appeal to the broadest market and nudge them left. You have to appeal to the most vociferous people on the left and right to get your impressions and to get your clicks. And often that information is done in a sensationalist way. That's the the medium and that's often um, through technology. And technology is something that frees us from needing to be in the same place every day always allows us, you know, immediate updates on the news, but also drives us into quite a one-dimensional world. So the beauty of the paperback becomes more important than ever when you put a phone next to it, or crucially when you put a phone in your pocket and decide to focus your attention on something as simple as a paperback. And, you know, this is a sponsored product. It is on newsstand in that sense. It's more like a magazine than a book. And we do have a sponsor um, in the form of Siemens, who looked at this and you know, of all of the things that we do at Monocle and said, you know, this is the perfect medium for, for telling our story, which they've done in a series of advertorials but isn't it funny how technology goes full circle uh,
11: josh it's on better newsstands as you mentioned where else can people find out more about the book and the other monocle
10: offerings i suppose they could they could track you down during one of your leisurely lunch breaks around marylebone or they could head to monocle.com shop
0: well that's all we've got time for this week's edition of the curator the show was produced by david stevens and presented by me fernando gusto pacheco Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening.